Take your Bible this morning to the book of Acts chapter number 1. Acts chapter number 1. This outdoor kind of setup reminds me of our first Sunday that we had at our church this Easter. We really wanted to have a service. We had been shut down. Our church had been exclusively live streamed during that time. And it was just incredibly difficult, as you can imagine, as you have experienced here, being apart from your church family. And then as Easter was approaching, man, there was just a heart's craving that we would be able to come back together. Now, it wasn't possible at the time that we'd be able to come into the church, so we decided, as many other churches in our area and around the country decided to do, we had an outdoor service scheduled. We pulled up in our parking lot a a 16-foot flat-bottom trailer elevated. We built uh, some stairs to go up there, and man, our parking lot was full on Easter morning. My heart was full. We're singing songs about the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, we are just ready to have a good old time. I've got this sermon on my heart. I've been preparing. I've been praying. I was just really excited to get up there that day, and my wife and a few other ladies sang that morning. And as they were making their way down the stairs, I did the gentlemanly thing to allow them to come down. But as I was on my way up, I tripped and fell on the top step, and my friends, I landed face first on that flat-bottom trailer You know, it's like uh, Jesus did. He came up, he rose again on the third day. I rose again off that flat-bottom trailer and got to preaching. So uh, this is very familiar to me. Thank you for being here this morning. Not like you had much choice, but I appreciate it anyway. Um, Very excited to be here. I want to thank Brother Shepard. I'm not sure who all goes into the decision-making process. I'm sure Dr. Rasmussen and Dr. Shetler have some say in that, Dr. Getch. I just want to thank you for allowing me to be here uh, I'm not the guy most likely to be standing up here. I'm certainly not the most qualified. Uh, there's guys doing a lot better job around the country than me, but I really appreciate this. This is an honor for me. I remember sitting where you are thinking, man, one day I want to be up there. And this is a real blessing and just a, a real privilege for me. So Acts chapter number one, let's get to preaching because Brother Thomas, uh, Brother Shepherd said that uh, uh, it, he, uh, he was worried about my throat. He said that I needed to be done by 10. He said, because if I didn't get done by 10, he's going to slit my throat. Um, but nonetheless, 10 o'clock, we'll be out of here. Acts chapter 1, verse number 1. The Bible says, The former treatise have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach, until the day in which he was taken up. After that, he, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles, whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith he, Ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Whence they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times and the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. You know, God never calls his servants to mediocre ministry. 
It doesn't really matter if you're called this morning to full-time service, part-time service, or sometime service. God wants your service for Him to be powerful, impactful, and effective. And when we settle for anything less than that, it is because we have neglected to take advantage of the power that He has made available for us. You know, some time ago, uh, I got to this passage. In fact, I believe the email to invite me to this place and this, to speak to you this day came to my email some months ago. And two nights later, I was in my bed praying about what the Lord would have me preach. And he laid this passage of scripture and this message on my heart. I had read this in my devotions. And, and while the devotions emphasis was clearly on verse number eight, something stuck out to me about this passage that had never stuck out to me before. I I got to thinking that Jesus, obviously you know the context of the passage, he's just resurrected at the end of the Gospels, he's now right before the time of his ascension. The verses we just read cover about 40 days of him being with his disciples, the Bible tells us. But I got to thinking, what did Jesus in these 40 days teach to these disciples that he was unable to teach to them in three and a half years? Was he not walking with these men? Were they not sharing campfires with him? Were they not having meals with him? They went with him everywhere. In fact, there were just a handful of times when Jesus went out from these men. And in three and a half years, he taught them all sorts of things. So why did he have to come back for 40 days? I want you to imagine with me this morning, you are going to be a graduate this year. I don't know where you are. Maybe you're a senior, junior, sophomore, freshman. I don't know. Maybe you're only doing one year Bible. But I want you to imagine that this upcoming spring, you'll be walking the stage prayerfully, and hopefully the Lord will allow that to happen. And I know we have to use our imagination for some of you, because you say, Brother Andrew, I've got a long way to go before I get to graduation. I get that. But I want you to imagine you're going to walk the platform. You're excited. You've got that you know, horrible gown on. I still haven't figured out why they make those swear them things. And they got that hat with the little thing that's like a fly hitting you in the nose. It's terrible. It's embarrassing. It's like the college's last jab. Like, ha, you look ridiculous. And so it's like, uh, that's how you walk across the platform. But nonetheless, you're excited about it. Your family's here. Your mama's in the crowd. Oh, it's my baby. Your daddy's in the crowd. Yeah, it's my boy. You know, and you're all excited about it. You walk across the platform. There's Pastor Chapel. You get to shake his hand, and he hands you the diploma. And by the way, practice that little cross handshake thing. That'll get you. That's confusing. So you, you do that. You get the diploma. You turn for the picture. You look goofy. He looks awesome. He's never taken a bad picture in his life, frankly. You look ridiculous, but you're excited. Man, your mama's got tears and everybody's. And then the announcement comes if the graduating class, before you get to your family and everybody else, we want to have a meeting with you in the North Auditorium. If you still call it that, I'm not sure. We used to meet in the North Auditorium. And you go over there and you'd sit in the auditorium. You're excited. You've got the cap and gown on. You're waiting for pictures. Your family's all there. And then the announcement comes from Dr. Getch. He stands up there. He says, Look, you have done such a wonderful job. You all did great. Four years, you have learned the the heart of the ministry, you have learned the doctrines of the Bible, this is a great day, but since you have now graduated, we want to offer you a special class we're opening up now that we feel will truly prepare you for ministry. You might be thinking to yourself, what have we been doing? For four years, I paid you. Thank you for the final payment uh, ready to be made. I mean, for four years, I paid for an education, 
And when you come to a Bible college like this, it's not just an education academically. It's truly an education spiritually. And you get to go through the rigors of, of waking up early and staying up late and making sure you're staying in your Bible. Man, Bible college, particularly this one, is a blessed place of spiritual growth. And you're here and you say, now you say there's a class? Now there's a class that's going to prepare me for ministry? What in the world have we been doing? And then I got to thinking, the college does offer that. It's called the master's program. <laughs> right? For four years you paid us, but now if you get this extra year, you'll be really qualified. You know what this is in scripture? This is the master class of Jesus on really powerful and effective ministry. Jesus now pre presents to us a master's class on how to have a powerful and effective ministry. I want you to notice them with me this morning, a few aspects of Jesus's master's class. First of all, I want you to see the first necessary characteristic is this. It is a divine ally. Now, sometimes we read the book of Acts, and I think we make a mistake. The book of Acts is no doubt a colorful book, a powerful book, a moving book, but we read it and we get the idea that the apostles and the men that kind of, so to speak, changed the world were superheroes for God doing a great work for Him. The reality is, the book of Acts is the story of profoundly ordinary men changing the world through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. Ordinary people doing great things, not because of them as people, but because of their God. And we read the stories and we see the power and it's, it comes off the page to us. But you must understand it is not the men that perform the work, but it is the God of the men that perform the work. Hudson Taylor said it like this. All God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his power and presence with them. Have you ever considered what the book of Acts might look like if there were no Holy Spirit presence? What if we just could, uh, in a vacuum, take the Holy Spirit out of the book? How profound do you think it would be? How powerful? I would suggest to you that it would be rather mediocre. There would be no day of Pentecost, clearly. There would be no sermon that Peter preaches where 3,000 souls get saved. A few chapters later, even more thousands of people are getting saved. I mean, you get maybe six or seven chapters in the book of Acts, and you kind of start to get the sense that just the church in Jerusalem is some 8,000 people strong. And you're reading through this, and you're thinking to yourself, wow, this is powerful, this is real effective ministry. You take the Holy Spirit out, and it is not powerful ministry at all. And then you get further down, I would suggest to you that without the Holy Spirit, there is no Damascus Road experience. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no call to worldwide missions because you'll recall that Paul had certain desires to go to certain places, but the Spirit of God would not allow him. You know what Paul would have been? He would have been a good man. He would have been an educated man. But without the Holy Spirit's leadership, he would have been a man preaching out in the wilderness, not knowing who to actually preach to. Philip was driven by the Spirit into, uh, uh, out of Jerusalem to take the word of God to Samaria. Without the Holy Spirit present in the book of Acts, the book is not special at all. And the same is true for your ministry. Without the Holy Spirit of God in your life and using you as an instrument, your ministry will be mediocre at best. 
Jesus teaches us that here in verse number 2. I want you to see this with me. He gives for us this example that without this divine ally, your ministry will be powerless. Notice, until the day, in verse number 2, in which he was taken up, after that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. What we find here is Jesus teaches us the necessity of the Holy Spirit in ministry. Now, remember, this is the resurrected Savior. Remember, this is Jesus in his glorified body. He is, at this point, all-powerful, all, uh, uh, almighty. He is the resurrected Savior, overcoming death, hell, and the grave. I mean, Jesus, at this point in time, has all power given unto him and the Bible tells us that when he started into ministry in this moment in time with these disciples, he elected to utilize the power of the Holy Spirit. If Jesus submits himself to the authority of the role of the Holy Spirit in his ministry, why would we ever do anything different? Why would we say, no, I'm good today. I don't really need the help. Why would we not make that one of our primary pursuits in ministry is to know the power of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. You see, throughout Jesus' ministry, it's rather unique, but there are times when in his earthly ministry, before his death and resurrection, there are times he teaches rather simple and plain truths, and the audience just does not respond well. In fact, uh, his mother and Joseph had forgotten him in the temple, 12 years old, they come back after a few days journey the bible says they found him disputing with the doctors of the law in the temple and there he is and and mary says like all moms do jesus how could you you know when you hid in the mall and like the clothing racks and your mom found you you know that she says jesus how could you do this and jesus says wist ye not that i should be about my father's business and the bible says these words about mary she understood it not now, to us, it makes a lot of sense what he meant. He wasn't talking about his father Joseph's business. She, he was talking about his heavenly father's business and that he ought to be teaching and communicating God's word. And it makes sense to us. She didn't understand it at all. Going even farther, he tells his disciples clearly on multiple occasions, the Son of Man must be delivered into evil men's hands. He will be slain and he will rise again. Like literally the clearest truth, the clearest presentation of the gospel you could ever see. And the Bible says, and they understood it not. How in the world? And the disciples throughout the ministry of Jesus are presented, at least the way I read it, as sort of bumbling fools sometimes. Jesus teaches them very simple truths and they're like... They, they speak out of turn. They don't understand what's going on. I'll give you an idea of this. Remember when uh, Jesus hears of Lazarus' death and, and Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, the same one we criticize, he is so excited to be serving the Lord. Uh, Jesus says, well, we're going to go and we're going to take care of this issue, but Lazarus is dead because there was some confusion as to what they meant by sleepeth and dead. He says, Lazarus is dead. And Thomas says, well, Lord, let us go die with him. I appreciate your passion, but how does that help anybody? And then you, you look at Peter at the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, just a fantastic, wonderful point in Jesus' ministry. 
my, my dad says it like this, and I think this is the best way I've ever heard it explained. The Mount of Transfiguration was Jesus for a moment in time, what was on the inside shown out on the outside. And man, that's what happened. His glory was revealed to those around him for a moment in time. And Peter was there. And here were Peter's words. You know, Moses and Elijah showed up. You know the story. Uh, at least if you're a sophomore, freshman, you're probably way behind that. But nonetheless, uh, we have Peter saying, oh, Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And here's Peter's recommendation. He says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. You think? This is like one of the greatest times of Jesus' earthly ministry. Good words, Peter. It's like, now stop talking. And here's what he goes on to say. Let us build a tabernacle for you, Lord, and for Moses and Elijah. Peter, why couldn't you just stop at the idiotic statement? Why did you have to go to the profoundly idiotic statement? What happened? These men, although they were passionate, these men, although they had somewhat of a biblical understanding, probably just from their Hebrew upbringing, Without the Holy Spirit, they were bumbling fools. Without the Holy Spirit to illuminate them to God's truth, they didn't know what they were talking about. In fact, the Bible tells us that, that the spiritual things of God, but the natural th- man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. That's 1 Corinthians 2, for, verse 14. The natural man receiveth not the things of of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. The truth is, anytime the preacher or the teacher takes the pulpit or the lectern, apart from God's Holy Spirit's power to teach or communicate God's truth, the truth of the matter is, we are bumbling fools. And we don't understand what we're trying to communicate. And there are aspects of what takes place in that moment that we cannot do. We have a wonderful Spanish ministry at our church. Uh, uh, Pastor Jorge Franco, one of our young ladies, is here. Uh, Andrea Garcia from our Spanish church. Wonderful, wonderful work. A few years ago, they asked me to come down and preach at the Spanish church, and it was my honor and privilege to do so. It was a sort of family conference. I went down there. I preached to the congregation. Obviously, me no speaky any Spanish. So uh, I needed some help, so I had an interpreter there. And uh, in fact, it was Andrea's dad was, was the man helping me there. And if you've never had the opportunity to preach through an interpreter, it's horrible. Um, you know, you can't get any rhythm going. I preach kind of fast, as you can tell. And it's just very difficult. And you say, and the Bible says, Biblia. And, uh, you know, that's my, sorry, sorry, guys. I wish I spoke Spanish. I just don't. And, and then you, you like even lose your trains of thought. It's very difficult. But throughout the sermon, you know, you may preach for 20, 30 minutes. There, there has to come a point, at least for me, there has to come a point of some like, you know, like levity, some humor, some, something to break the monotony of the la 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 ha And so, you know, and it's just difficult. So at one time, I decided to interact with Brother Garcia. And he had said a word that I found pretty funny the way he said it. And my Spanish teacher in high school told me that though I don't speak a, uh, speak a lick of Spanish nor English, apparently, uh, though I don't speak a lick of Spanish, my accent is great. And so I 
I decided to show off my accent. I repeated the word he said, and, and I was trying to be funny. I interacted with him there. And, and the adult congregation didn't really laugh so much, but the teenagers were cracking up. And so I went on to preach. I preached the sermon, and the altars were filled, and I was really pretty proud of, of myself and uh, thankful for Brother Garcia because I told him, whatever's not good in my sermon, you just preach whatever you feel led of the Lord to preach. So if it doesn't come across well, it was his fault, not mine. But nonetheless, I was pretty excited about it. Went home that day. Man, I was just so thankful for the opportunity. Monday morning, I walk into the church offices, and I have to pass by our Spanish, church, uh, Spanish pastor's office door to get to my office. I walk through the office hallway there, and Brother Franco says, Brother Andrew, come in here. It's like being called to the principal's office, and I'm the pastor. <laughs> and I truly, now this is how vain I am. I thought he was going to say, Brother Andrew, thank you for that message. That was really, really uh, encouraging. That was a real help to my church. I was anticipating that. I come in, he's like, have a seat. And I'm like, oh, this is feeling eerily like going to Brother Weaver's office when I was in college. I sit down, and he said, Brother Andrew, what you said yesterday was no good. I said, what do you mean, Brother Franco? I, I, I thought he meant the whole sermon. I was like, look, a lot of church members probably feel that way, but they're polite enough to keep it to themselves. Why are you saying that? And he said, no, when you told Brother Garcia this, he said, it did not mean what you think it meant. And what I had said in Spanish was one of the most vile cuss words that you can say. And I did not realize at the time that the reason the teenagers were laughing because they're immature and the reason the altars were filled because the adults were praying for me. <laughs> I decided at that moment that I was going to leave the language to the language expert. But every day I take the pulpit, every time, every opportunity I have to communicate God's truth, when I try to do the Holy Spirit's job, it is like me trying to bust in on somebody else doing their job. There is a point in time, and preachers, you learn this and you learn this well. You will prepare and you will pray and you will be as passionate about a sermon as you can ever be. And then at the end of the sermon, you're saying, God, I pray that you take the word of God and you deliver it to their hearts because I know I could not do it through the best of my intentions, through all the abilities you've given me. I know I failed in this area. So, Lord, I'm asking that the divine power and authority of the Holy Spirit would deliver the word of God to the hearts because that is a language I am unfamiliar with. Preacher, you can get to their eardrums, but the Spirit must take it from there. We must depend on the divine ally that God has given us. The Holy Spirit of God has come into this world to assist us in our ministry. And we'll further that thought in just a moment. But He is your ally. And without Him, your ministry will be rather mediocre at best. I want you to notice not only the first characteristic is a divine ally. The second characteristic is this, a delayed attack. Notice in verse number 4. The Bible teaches us here that these men, although excited and passionate about having seen the Lord Jesus, I mean, could you imagine being them? A few days ago, imagine the roller coaster of emotions they've ridden. A few days ago, their Savior had died. Their hope was gone. And you can get a sense of that in the upper room. They're almost just despondent. They have no hope. And then he rises again. As he said he would. I mean, they had a hard time believing in themselves. But can you imagine how excited they must be at this moment to share the message of Jesus? 
I mean, he died, but he rose again. The resurrection validated his divine power. He is the God-man. He is the Messiah. It's all been proven. Can you imagine how ready they are to attack the world with the message of Jesus Christ? And, and maybe this is my, just the way I read the Bible, you know, the kind of person I am. I think maybe there was an aspect of this that was, you know, we're ready to tell the world because it proves us right. Right? I mean, I'm sure Peter had like an Uncle Bob he saw at family reunions. was like, Peter, you and that Jesus character, you're never going to amount to anything. And I bet Peter wanted to go and tell everybody, hey, I followed him. I gave my life to him. I, I resigned my fishing business so that I could follow him. And it's been worth it all because he is exactly who he said he was. I told you. Na, 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 boo, boo. Can you imagine how excited these men are? And yet the Bible tells us, notice in verse number four, here's Jesus' words to them. And being assembled together with them, he commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father. Now the promise of the Father had been made to them by Jesus in Luke chapter 24, verse 49. The Bible says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. With all the zeal and passion in their hearts, Jesus says, guys, I know you're excited, but you need to wait. Now, you'll, you'll figure all this out when you get into full-time ministry, but when you get passion behind a ministry, when you get excitement, when you get that kind of that soul-stirring momentum, you don't say, all right, everybody, I think it's time we take a quick sabbatical from it. You know, the Reformers Unanimous program is really doing well right now, but I think we just need to take a furlough. No, that's not how it works. You capitalize on the momentum. You capitalize on the zeal. You take that and do something with it. And Jesus says, I know you're excited, but wait. Why would he tell them to wait? Perhaps it's because Jesus understood anything they attempted to do in the kingdom of God would be met with failure if they did it apart from his Holy Spirit. I mean, they, they, they couldn't do anything. In fact, the fact that he said... Uh, guys, you have to wait on this, proves to us that they could not reproduce the effect that the Holy Spirit could do on his own. In other words, in their, without his Spirit's power, they couldn't produce the same effect. The conversions wouldn't happen. The power wouldn't fall. Jesus says, wait until you have the Spirit's power. You know, Jesus had a prayer request. In fact, in in conversations with Pastor Chapel, he is very proud of this fact. Years ago when the college uh, accreditation board came out, they interviewed many of the students. He's told us this several times. He said, one of the things I was the most proud of is that uh, the accreditation board said that our students unanimously understood what our vision and our goal was at our college. And that was to train laborers for the harvest. And that is so true. In fact, it's, as you know, one of the only prayer requests of the Lord. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers into the harvest. For the labor, harvest is truly plenteous, but the laborers are few. There's a prayer request of the Lord. But don't you ever think that God is so starving for laborers that he will accept any of those that are not filled with his spirit? Don't get the impression that the, the battlefield is so empty of Christians that he needs people even if they're not full of his spirit. 
God will not accept that and God will not bless that. He told his disciples, I know you're excited. I know you know the truth. I know that, but wait. College student, you are in a wonderful place right now. And when I was sitting in your seat, I didn't necessarily think it was a wonderful place. I mean, I was here because I had to be here. I was here because, you know, my future wife was here. Uh, I was here and I was frankly miserable here. I hated the weather. I hated the smell that my truck had every time I opened the door. I hated how far I had to drive to the nearest Chick-fil-A, which was in Ontario at the time. And then right beside it was the Bass Pro Shop. I, I did not have a great experience in college. You know why? Because my spirit wasn't right. This place did more for me spiritually than probably any point in time in my life. And I know there's maybe some of you in this, in this not room, this outdoor facility this morning that are like me. You know, I was kind of the guy sitting in the back back there. That's kind of where I was. I just wasn't sold out. I wasn't fully persuaded. You are in a wonderful place of spiritual growth. You have godly mentors. You get to hear good preaching and good chapel messages all the time. Take advantage of this because Jesus' advice is this. Wait until you have the power of the Holy Spirit. He would rather you take a master's program and then a graduate program and then all sorts of other <laughs> doctorate programs if you have not been full of the Spirit because all that knowledge does nothing if the Spirit does not help you convey it. Wait. It says not only is there a divine ally, there's a delayed attack. I want you to notice, thirdly, there is a deliberate attention, a deliberate attention, a focus on something particular. Verse number six and verse number eight, I want you to notice this. The Bible says in verse number six, the disciples, though being told in verse number four, that they should wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. The, the indication is here that there's a bit of a break between verse number five and six. And that would make sense because this passage doesn't cover a moment in time. It covers 40 days. So the disciples were in a meeting with Jesus. He told them, guys, you need to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit. And then they go home and they're thinking about all this. They're, it's all on their hearts. They're bubbling over with joy and excitement. And then verse number six, they get back together. That's what the Bible says. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him saying, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? Lord, will you restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? And, and in some sense, it makes a little sense to me that just previously Jesus has been communicating truth about the kingdom of God to them through the Holy Ghost. But they're now asking about the kingdom of Israel. And these disciples, I think, now this is just the way I read it and the way I understand the passage, I think the disciples are excited about their newfound, newfound ability to understand spiritual concepts. Uh, they have the Holy Spirit assisting them to understand these truths. And so it's in a sense they're kind of flexing their spiritual muscles. They're asking about eschatological issues here. When will you restore the kingdom of Israel? In fact, it has to do with covenantal theology to the covenants made to King David. They are graduating here from, you know, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, and they're going into some of the deeper aspects of theology. And I think they're getting home, and they're like, wow, I've never seen the Bible like this. I've never seen the types of Christ in the Old Testament like this. This is wonderful. And they come back and they say, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus, as he often does, gently but firmly 
redirects their attention. Notice verse number 7. It is not for you to know the times of the seasons which the Father has put in his power, in his own power. He says, guys, there are some things that you focus on that are good and you ought to be thinking about them, but it is not the main priority. It's not for you to know some of these things. And he says, verse number 8, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Jesus throughout his ministry taught often on the kingdom of God. The disciples were often fascinated with the kingdom of God and its place in the kingdom of Israel. They often focused on this. And so when they're able to understand these spiritual concepts like they've never been able to before, they say, Jesus, is now the time that you should restore the kingdom to, your, to, to, to the seed of David? Is this the, the Davidic covenant coming to pass? Lord, teach us these deep things of theology. And here's Jesus' words. Guys, I've told you what to do. Focus on the Holy Spirit. Wait. Wait here until you be endued with power from on high, because if you don't get that part, the theology you know matters nothing. And it's so easy when you get into ministry to focus on all the peripheral things and fail to see the most important things. You get so focused on the logistics of ministry, the... Uh, the projector that we need to purchase or the computers that are going down or the visits that we need to make or mowing the widow's yard. We get so focused on it all. I think Jesus sometimes wants to grab our heads and say, focus on the power of the Holy Spirit. Focus on trying to find him in your life, being filled with him, walking with him. And my friends, you understand this and you understand this well. The Holy Spirit is not a power to seek. Sometimes we get that idea that we're just seeking the Holy Spirit so that we might have His power. The Holy Spirit is a person to be possessed by. That He would have all of you. The truth is, you got as much of the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get when you got saved. How much, of him, how much of you does He have right now? See, that is the pursuit in ministry. That every day we would be seeking to be more controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. Brother Shepard and I were just having conversations about, uh, this may surprise you, but our church started the week before Lancaster Baptist Church. My dad planted our church in our front yard the week before this ministry began. I told Brother Shepard that our ministries have taken a slightly different path of growth. <laughs> you know, we don't have a campus quite like this. But the truth is, for the man that is truly controlled by the Spirit of God, there is perfect peace knowing that we are doing everything we can for him and letting him fill in the gaps that we can't fill ourselves. Not every place is like this, but every place is blessed of the Holy Spirit for the man that will be controlled by him. And that's enough for me. Knowing that God is in control of his church, it's never been my church, knowing that he is the one shepherding and leading us, that is the goal of ministry. See, some time ago I sat on a uh, question and answer uh, council, so to speak, at a, at a local venue there in Fort Worth. Pastor Chapel sat on it. Pastor, uh, Brother Sam Davidson sat on it as well. Another young man sat on the council. And there I am, little old me, not knowing anything, wet behind the ears in ministry. I mean, I don't know anything. I'm sitting by these spiritual giants. One day we're going to look at these two men, Pastor Chapel and Brother Sam Davidson, like, 
like people look at Jack Hiles. Now, I mean, these are true giants of the faith and fundamentalism. And here I am sitting on the end like, please don't ask me a question. They come to me and the, the, the topic was a biblical preaching and, and how we prepare and so forth and so on. And, and the, the man who was controlling it was supposed to send me a, a questionnaire list, like the questions that were going to be asked. He forgot to do so. So I had no time to prepare for the questions. I mean, these are just like, you know, tough questions coming my way. And one of the questions was this. I'm sitting, remind you, maybe there's other people that can go sit on a council with Sam Davidson and Pastor Chapel and be like, yeah, I, I belong here. I did not feel that way. I felt like, you know, the unnamed disciples, so to speak, the guys you don't even remember their names. That's where I was. I was struggling. And the question came across, how long do you prepare for each sermon you preach? I want you to be in my place, sitting right next to Pastor Chapel and Sam Davison, knowing that they're about to answer the same question that you're about to answer. What do you say? Uh, I answered the question as honestly as I could. Brother Sam Davison had just answered the question. He said, about every sermon that I prepare and preach, I, I study for about 10 hours on every message. Oh, I was like, whoa, 10 hours, that's a lot. Uh, that's a lot for me. Uh, there have been some messages that have been that long, but most of them aren't. Come down the line, Pastor Chapel, you know, he said something like uh, 150 hours. I don't even remember his answer. It was like, whoa, no wonder you have a big church type deal. And I was like, wow. Got to me and I was like, guys, I'll just tell you, six hours is about what each sermon takes. And you're saying, you spent six hours on this trash? Sorry, guys, it's as good as I can do. Six hours. And I said, you know, I have a family. I have three young kids. When I get I leave the church, when I get to the church, it's very difficult to get any studying done because everybody's asking me to improve this purchase and get this done. We've got to talk about this, meetings. And then I get home and my kids are like, Dad, 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 I'm all jacked up on Mountain Dew. And it's just terrible. Uh, it's just crazy environment. So most of my studying, believe it or not, comes from 8.30 p.m. to 2.30 a.m. in the morning. So I'm, six hours, that's all I could do. But I left that day thinking, you know what, I'm no Sam Davidson. Six hours isn't really that bad. I got to Sunday morning, and uh, for some reason that particular question was on my mind, on my heart. Six hours, six hours, six hours. Before the Sunday morning message I was to preach, I went to the Lord in prayer. I said, Lord, I want you to bless this message today. I ask for your power. I ask that you would purify me of any sin or anything that I've done that would grieve your spirit and limit his effectiveness in my life lord there are aspects of what i'm about to do that i know i'm not capable of performing on my own so i ask that the spirit of god would take in effect where i am weak and then god grieved my heart he convicted me because i was so prideful that i had prepared for six hours and i had been praying for six minutes he said you know that's how much you rely on you, six hours worth. And here's how much you rely on me, just a quick, short prayer before you get up to preach. Man, I fell under deep conviction. 98% of my ministry was focused on me and what I could do and what I could conjure up, the illustrations, the laughs that I could get. 98% of that was me, and I went to God for the token prayer. Lord, help me today. What a shame. 
The Lord says you can do nothing in ministry apart from my Holy Spirit. He told these disciples who knew all the gospel truth and it proved himself by many infallible proofs to them that he was truly the resurrected Savior with all power and authority and sovereignty. He told them, guys, don't even head into ministry unless you have my spirit. What a shame it is when we take such a presumptuous attitude to say, you know what, I can preach when I don't need really that much help from the Spirit of God. On my computer desktop, I have a, 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 tie, a, a folder entitled Sermons. In that folder lies every sermon I have ever preached since I graduated college. It doesn't include Sunday school lessons. It doesn't include devotions. It is only sermons. I checked on it about a week ago as I was kind of thinking and preparing for this message. I think over the course of my ministry so far, I've preached somewhere about 817 sermons. And you say, Brother Andrew, you are proof practice does not make perfect. Truth is, I go through those sermons sometimes thinking, man, what was I, what was I doing? What was I thinking? Where was I going with this? But the reason I have them in that folder is because at any moment in time I can, you know, search, spotlight search, mothers. And all the sermons that have the, the, the word mothers in them will come up. And it's kind of like the way I categorize and file my sermons. And I got to thinking the other day, if there was a way that I could do some sort of keystroke, maybe Command-Shift-Alt-4-L-W, uh, whatever the keystroke is, I wonder if God could take what sections of sermons that I have preached apart from His Spirit and highlight those to me. And just in a moment of time, all 817 sermons or whatever I've preached, if He could just take and show me with some magical formulaic keystroke that says, you know what, these are the parts that you preach with my Spirit, and these are the parts that you preach without my Spirit. And I want you to know that if I could do that, I would be terrified to know how many times I attempted to preach God's word apart from truly seeking the power of the Holy Spirit in my ministry. And if I could come up with that magical keystroke, here's what I would do. Everything that was preached apart from His Spirit's power, I might as well just hit the delete button on. And in a moment of time, undo all those hours of sermon prep in a moment of time, undo all the work that I had done, all the passionate preaching, all the tears that came from my eye, if it was done apart from His Spirit's power and influence, it was for nothing. To try to attempt to work for God apart from His Spirit's power will be the surest way to a mediocre ministry in your life. 